Welcome to The Spotlight with the Ambassador and the Chief. In this program, we take a fresh look at some of today's challenges from the economy, education, politics, security, defense, and much more. You'll be prompted to see and think about things just a bit differently. Now, here are your hosts, Ambassador Harry Thomas and Chief Alex Morales. And welcome to The Spotlight. We are your hosts, Ambassador Retired Harry Thomas. And I'm the Chief Alex Morales. Harry, I'm excited today. We have uh, up and coming uh, here. We got uh, Juan Paredes, candidate for the U.S. House of Representatives for Flor Florida 26th District. Juan, thank you for taking the time, sir. Thank you. Thank you. Yes, it's uh, really a pleasure being here. And it's honestly an uh, honor being on your show. I really appreciate you guys having me on. Really, it's, it's, it's awesome. The pleasure is ours. Thank you for taking the time. Well, uh, Juan, just please tell our audience about yourself and why are you running for Congress? Definitely. Um, so running for Congress is actually a decision I made very recently, but the the influence and the, the reasons for it were uh, upcoming from throughout my entire life. Most of my life I lived in what the Census Bureau would classify as deep poverty. So I've lived, I, I understand what it means to struggle. I understand what it means to have, to live every day like uh, this sort of Damocles is hanging over your head. So it's, it, it, that has been a major influence in my decision to run for, for Congress and fixing the, the dysfunctions in our society that led to my position To, to that led to my struggle is the biggest influence in me running for Congress. Uh, what better what better person to be the representative of the people who struggle than somebody who struggles himself? So um, that that is that for me is my my sole reasons why I'm running. But please tell us a little bit who is Juan Paredes? Yeah. Uh, oh, sorry. I have that's okay. Um, so. Let, let me start. Let me start a little earlier, honestly. Go ahead. Um, so, I I grew up at, in my childhood. I actually I actually didn't. I actually wasn't born in in poverty. Really, um, my my mom lived with her sister, my aunt, and they had, for the most part, in my early lives, a very stable, um, a very stable upbringing for me as a child. And I actually lived it fairly comfortable for the very early stages of my life which made the transition once because my, my mom and her sister could, couldn't live together forever. And I, of course, have other siblings who, who needed um, care as well. So um, once, they, once they were no longer be able to stay together, that, that transition, that immediate transition from fairly stable to very poor uh, was very jarring. So that took a lot of adjustments uh, for me personally as a kid, being able to adjust Um, to my to my new circumstances in life and society doesn't make it very easy for you especially in America they they make society in general gives you the impression that if you lack money or if you're poor it's not just because you lack money it's it's almost as if you lack character like if you had better character better morals that would translate into more money so that that's that mentality um, is permeated through all institutions of our society in some way or form, not completely, but generally. So, you know, in our schools, in our media, um, maybe even in our churches, um, they, they, that mentality is, is that of pick, picking yourself up from the bootstraps and, and um, being a better person gives you better money. That can definitely, uh, That, that can definitely bring out that, that mentality. So um, that, breaking away from that was very hard as a kid. And what really, what really broke out of that mentality was understanding. Understanding history of the United States, understanding how exactly I got to that position, understanding the dysfunctions of our society that led people to fall through the cracks, and understanding where, uh, where the net is and why it's so low. Really, the, the welfare system in our, in our country acts less like a floor to catch people when they fall and more like a ceiling to funnel people downwards 
as they rise up. So um, having that understanding and having that context really put a lot of things in perspective for me and really showed me that there's, there's a lot you can change to prevent people from ending up in that position. And, it, and a lot of that change really is impacted by, by politics. So um, that really led me into that, into the field of Congress. Okay. Go ahead, Harry. I love that answer, Juan, but we have listeners from all over the world. Uh, <clears throat> so you need to tell them, please tell them where you are now, where, what city you grew up in, what schools you went to. Uh, the, the sword of Damocles is, uh, you know, that's, that's classical Greek. So uh, you've, you've, you've attained an excellent education somehow, somewhere. So let's hear about this. Yeah, so um, I, I grew up most of my life in Miami, uh, in Miami, in Miami, Florida, in the United States. I, I did spend a little bit of time um, because of financial reasons. We moved around a little bit. So I, I moved up to the, um, to the Northeast in, in Philadelphia, New Jersey for a bit, um, periodically when I was younger, like I, I moved into Philadelphia for a year, came back to Miami, then went to New Jersey for financial reasons again. And then eventually once we were more settled, we moved back to Miami again. Um, so I did move around a bit, but for the most part, I spent most of my life in Miami, Florida. And, um, and when it comes to education, it's going to surprise a lot of people, but um, I, I actually don't have a lot of formal education. So um, I went to school formally for, for, all the way to middle school. Uh, at that point, it, it, the 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 institution, the way school is designed, really didn't play a lot to my strengths. Mm -hmm. And it, it's very it, it's very um, conforming to authority. It's it's very structured in a way that you even even the slightest deviation makes you a deviant. Um, so it, it it was very hard for me to. To, to go through the school institutions. Um, the education aspect I enjoyed, but the structure of how schools institutionalized really made it difficult for me to progress fully. Uh, after middle school, I tried doing virtual schooling for a bit, tried to isolate just the education and remove a lot of the institutions. But as a kid, it's hard to have the discipline to do something like that. And my mom working and having and me having three other siblings, it's hard for her to constantly be managing me and my, and my time. So um, that wasn't going to be very viable long term. Uh, after about a year of, doing, of trying the virtual schooling, uh, I just decided to take my GED. Um, it was actually, I actually didn't really do a lot of studying for it. I, I took my GED, I decided to take it and then took my GED about a week after deciding. So it wasn't, I didn't really have a lot of time to study. Uh, I was trying to get through it quickly because I wanted to just move on to higher education. And then uh, after a year break, because I was very young at that point, I was like 16 when I took my GED. So move, going straight into college wasn't, gonna, wasn't the best idea at such a young age. So I took a year off first before going and trying to do higher education. Um, I realized quickly that a lot of the institutionalized issues are mitigated, but then um, you then have to basically pay for everything um, through higher education. You do get you do get a uh, of course financial aid, but it's not permanent. It doesn't last forever, and it runs out. So, it, uh, me going to the education system, especially for especially for what I, was, what I was wanting to do, which was computer science, it was just going it was just going to be sorry. It's just going to be expensive. And um, it was it, it was not going to really give me the satisfaction I wanted for the price I was gonna that I was gonna have to pay for it, and I was gonna have to continue going through that institutionalized system that that I still didn't care for. It was mitigated, but not completely gone. So I just decided to take my education in my own hands and started reading a lot of different books that I cared about in education, history, sorry, in economics, history, uh, geopolitics even. Um, 
authors like Giannis Varoufakis, for example, when it comes to economics, is one of my favorite authors. Mm-hmm. Uh, he's uh, he's also a a teacher in Athens, actually, mm-hmm. so in the University of Athens. So um, it, 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 I I just I mostly took the education in my own hands when it comes to education. Oh wow, that's impressive. So um, going to your candidate. You candidacy. Uh, what unique skills do you have that make you the best candidate for your district? Well, definitely, um, I do have a lot of economic and history, uh, contextual history information. So, um, it, it, I do bring a lot to the table when it comes to understanding U.S. history and world history in general and um, economics. I read a lot about those things, but for the most part, I don't necessarily think those are skills necessary to do the job. I think a candidate should be a proper representation of the people he's, um, of the district he's representing. And uh, for the most part, the way you become a candidate, it kind of selects, it's almost as a funnel, it selects for a specific type of person. And a lot of those people aren't necessarily representative of the people they're representing. Um, they, you have to have either a large following or a lot of initial money to become a candidate. So, for, so when those people are running for Congress, you don't really have a proper representative. Uh, what makes me the best candidate for the job is that I lived my whole life through the struggles that people I would be representing are, I would be representing are struggling through right now. I would understand intimately and firsthand knowledge of what they go through and well the hardships that they have that they have to endure on a daily basis so that to me makes me uniquely qualified to uh, be the representative of, the, of this district than somebody else who goes through that same funnel is not going to be quite as representative so okay good well Juan I'm going to call you the disruptor yeah, <laughs> that's what it, that's, that's what I look to be. So <laughs> I take I that know. with pride. Maybe AOC is your uh, inspiration. But let's talk. When do you when you talk about changing our health system priority from profit to care? What do you mean? Oh, perfect. Honestly, uh, that's actually a really great question. So um, the United States prioritizes its care through profit, meaning you have to have a certain amount of money to be able to get a certain level of care. Um, there's no way around it. If you don't have a, if you don't have a, a, a health care, if you don't have the money to pay for it, you can go to the emergency room, but it's not going to be at the level of care that you would want to have. Um, it's, and this is the only developed nation in the world that does its healthcare system like this. Every other developed nation has some form of, of um, subsidized care for its citizens. It's only natural, like you, everybody, and, and it also makes a lot more economic sense. Instead of having separate healthcare systems that you have to pay in and then hopefully you don't have to use constantly, but if you do need to use it, since each healthcare system is separated, so like, you know, you have different companies doing healthcare, um, you'll have a much smaller pool of people paying into that system. I mean, it's impossible for every single person to individually pay for their care. So we all pay into a pool of, 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 of healthcare. And then when you need to use it, it's there for you to take from it, In most societies, they understand that it, the larger the pool of people that pay into a system, the easier it is to provide care because you have a lot more money to work with. If you have these separate companies doing healthcare, then it, it, it makes it, uh, it makes the pool of people paying into that system a lot smaller. So it makes the the amount of care they have to pay for a lot more expensive because there's just a lot less money in the pool. So if if we had a a a government system, some kind of uh, public health care that the government subsidizes, uh, it would it would have a lot more people in that pool, and then we can. Uh, use that use that um, that pool of money to make it cheaper to provide care. So you're talking about single payer almost. Single Which, payer, exactly. Single payer, similar to um, what Canada has. Not it doesn't have to be quite as extreme as like the UK, for example, which is completely nationalized, even their hospitals. But um, but some kind of uh, su- subsidizing for the government would that bef- definitely help most people in the country. Thank you. That. And with that, 
we're going to take a short break and we'll be right back. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. We're with you wherever Alexa and Google are. At home, in the car, on your smart TV, and your connected devices. Hey, Alexa. Hey, Google. Play my favorite Voice America podcast on TuneIn. It's just that easy. But don't forget to make sure you actually mention the name of the podcast show to make it work. Your favorite Voice America Talk Radio Network shows and hosts are in your car, outdoors, and wherever you need them to be. Listen anywhere. Get our mobile app for iPhone, BlackBerry, or Android at the Apple iTunes App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market. You are listening to The Spotlight with the Ambassador and the Chief. If you have a question or a comment about the program, drop us a line via email to support at dbaeecsolutions.com. Again, that's support at dbaeecsolutions.com. Now back to the spotlight. And we're back to the spotlight with candidate for the House of Representatives, Florida District 26, Juan Paredes. All right, Harry. Hey, Juan, thank you. That was a great first segment. You clearly care about people and you come from a background that many of us can relate to. Um, Please tell us about our audience, about your education plan. Yeah, so um, this to me is actually very important. Education is the backbone of any society. Uh, It's it's called the great equalizer for a good reason. It with, without proper education, people are not really going to understand what their rights are and what they have to fight for. People's rights are only rights that if they can fight for them. Like no one's going to come down and bestow rights to you. You have to fight for those rights. And understanding those rights really comes from a good education. So it, it to me, it's, it's actually very, very important that we have a strong education system. Um, in the United States right now, most of our education is structured with, um, in two ways. One is through strict KPIs for teachers through, um, through the, um, I'm losing the, the word here, uh, standardized tests. So they have, to, they have to have certain standardized tests and they measure their KPIs through these standardized tests. Hold on one sec, excuse me. Wow, we have a no acronym rule. So our oh, listeners sorry. abroad aren't gonna know what KPI is. In oh, fact, I don't know what KPI is. Oh, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. So what is it? Yeah, so uh, KPI is a key performance indicator. So they measure the success of teachers by the success of the students through the standardized tests. And that's very problematic because once, uh, once you start measuring success in that manner, then the focus of the teachers become not necessarily in proper education, but making sure that students have the right scores on those standardized tests. And, and having students remember certain uh, frivolous facts about science will get them a really good score in their standardized test. But it's not going to let, it's not going to give them a true understanding of the process of, of what, how they got that answer and why that answer is important. So it, that, that structure by itself is a major detriment to, to education. And then on top of that, they also have the, the systems of, of, of the way they fund the education. So the education is funded through, districts rather than federal funding. So it means that if a district is poor, they're not going to have the resources to provide proper education for a lot of students. And if a district is rich, they're going to have an excessive amount of resources. That's how, that's why you see some schools, they can't afford textbooks. And then other schools, they have iPads that they, that they use. So, um, and, and of course there's, there's magnet and private schools, which shouldn't exist in my opinion as well. Um, school isn't a for-profit institution. You shouldn't be making a profit off of people's education. You should be providing the best education you can at the time for as many people as possible. So profit shouldn't play a role here. 
as- oh, Excuse me, hold on one second. Are you saying there shouldn't be private, parochial, or charter schools? Not in, not if you want to have the best education out there. Because if if you have a private institution, they're going to incentivize to have people be in their institution by having a better education system. And you can only provide the best education. So let's say these private schools are providing best education, then you then they they have incentive at that point to try to limit the reach or the scope or the resources of any public institutions. Now, they, there's many avenues they have to do that. They can lobby um, uh, congressmen. They can, they can influence curriculum in schools. Like there's a lot of avenues they, can, they have to, to influence those things. And um, they, they have an incentive to do that if, they're, if, if their motive is profit. Because if the government provides free education at the at its peak level, there's not really going to be any incentive for people to use any private system. So in 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 the in the best case scenario, you would it's not that necessarily I wouldn't allow it. It's just that it wouldn't exist because it wouldn't be necessary because the government is going to provide it for you. So, so what you're so what you're saying is if public education would have been better than a private education, you say the private the private education would go away because it's for profit versus that. That's what you that's the case you're making. Exactly. It just it just wouldn't be necessary, it wouldn't exist because there's no there would be no incentive for people to use it. And and so um, that's why it, in in the in a in a perfect world, there would be no profit education. And actually there's actually many countries that have this very similar system right now. Like, for example, Finland has some of the best scores in any Western country. Um, only, o- the only ones that can compete are Eastern countries like China, South Korea, Taiwan. But uh, their education system is extremely um, uh, conform- uh, conformative, meaning they have to, uh, they have to uh, adhere to very, very strict societal rules. They have, they have to have, be very accommodating to authority and they have to have very strict guidelines for their education. It's not um, it, it, like in Finland, for example, you, you don't take a standardized test until the equivalent in the United States of middle school. Like when you're leaving middle school, that's the first standardized test any student would ever take in Finland. Um, their teachers do not have to uh, teachers, teachers in, in Finland aren't, aren't mouthpieces for a curriculum that's handed to them. They are very intimately involved in the architecture of that curriculum. They, they're very involved in building that curriculum. So of course, the, becoming a teacher is much harder in Finland than it would be here, but it's necessary for, for students to have a really good education. So um, changing that mentality of, of competition and, and making it more about cooperation in Finland and also removing standardized tests and making teachers more active in the student's education has, while at the time, 50 years ago, none of these things were proven to be very beneficial. It's shown after many decades to be an immensely better system than we have in the United States. And that's something that we should look towards to improving. So Juan, just to be clear, so you want, you would eliminate parochial schools too? Um, well, uh, I'm sorry, parochial schools is what? Catholic, Catholic schools, religious schools. Um, I, I, wouldn't say, I wouldn't necessarily say that I would, I would remove them as in I would make them, I would make a, there would be a rule that you couldn't be in one. Though um, if, people, if people feel like they want to go to a Catholic school, that's perfectly fine. But that Catholic school must have a, a standard of education that is up to par with a, a federal standard. Like there should be a standard of education. The be- everybody should be receiving the best possible education they can have. If they, if they feel like they want to go to a Catholic school, it's perfectly fine. Um, I, private, like I said, I won't, I wouldn't make it impossible for private schools to exist. I just don't think that if a, if there was a public education system that is sufficient enough, that is accessible to everybody, I don't. I just don't think it would be necessary. So I don't think people would go to it. But I wouldn't make it illegal for it to exist. It sure. just. It, it would just naturally fade away over time. Thank you, Juan. What do you mean when you're talking about uh, uh, 
affordable housing. When you're talking about accessibility to affordable housing, can you explain to the audience what you what you want to? Yeah, so um, affordable housing is is really vital for people to be able to function properly in a society. Um, people won't be able to really maximize their potential and their and their performance if they're insecure in their housing, if they don't have anywhere to sleep, if they don't have anywhere to to bathe or or um, get comfortable or even be secure because living outside is very dangerous. So housing is very, very vital to somebody's functionality in the society just in general. Um, and really in the United States, you don't, there's, there's a lot of homeless people, especially for the richest country on earth. There's half a million people who are actively homeless and many people you would consider homeless if you, if, if you considered buying a home as somebody who owns a home. There's a lot of people who rent and, and renting is a cycle. They, you know, especially if you're in deep poverty, there's times where you can afford it. And then eventually you cycle backwards in your financial status to where you can no longer afford it. So there's people who cycle in and out of homelessness all the time. And this, like I said, for the richest country on earth, this is, this is intolerable. Um, there are, and, and honestly, Finland is another good example of how they do housing. It, if somebody needs housing, they provide housing for them. And once they have a, once they, once they become functional enough, once they hit a level of functionality to where they can provide for themselves, then they cycle them out of that housing and put somebody else in who needs it, who needs it themselves. Because poverty is a cycle. So if somebody is no longer in that, in that system, in that cycle of poverty, we, 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 help them move on to owning their own home and then we provide the the housing that they had before that the government provided for them for somebody who who is still within that cycle of poverty uh it's so i mean we don't lack houses in the united states there are more empty houses like for example in the in just florida alone there are two hundred thousand empty homes and there are half a million homeless people so the there is enough houses in this country for everybody. We don't lack housing. We lack affordability. It's not that people, it's not that we don't have space, not that we don't have houses. We just don't have people who can afford them. And, it, and, and that's a choice we make. Housing, houses don't have to be this expensive. That's, this is a choice that, that, is, that we allow to exist. Uh, there, we can regulate the cost of housing in many ways. We can regulate um, the certain percentages of how much more you can make above a market price. We can regulate the the uh, property taxes of houses. Like there's many ways we can make it more affordable. But generally, the best way to do it is following Finland's is following Finland's lead and provide housing for people who need it. The government provides housing. They 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 purchase houses and provide housing for people who need it. And once they finally get to a point where they can function on their own we cycle them out and then we, and then move in somebody who needs that housing uh, who, who's still currently in that cycle of poverty i think that would be the best way to uh to make it so there's no homeless people in our in our society well i hope you're going to tell the people in finland to listen to this program <laughs> <laughs> they're gonna really they're really gonna like you one um, yeah it's, it's always good to look at how other people are doing things, their successes and their failures and, and, you know, try to, it's, and, and not every society is the same. So you can't copy things one to one. Like there's always going to be in uh, specific details that are going to be different, but you can always look at their successes and try to incorporate a lot of their successes into our own system. Oh yeah. I a hundred percent agree. I a hundred percent agree. And, uh, but I wasn't being facetious. You got to find somebody in Finland <laughs> To, to get this uh, when we send you the e-card. Uh, <laughs> so what can be done following on what you said earlier to strengthen the Affordable Care Act? So when it comes to the Affordable Care Act, it's, uh, it's a good, it's a good um, jumping star or, or uh, middle ground. It's a good platform to, to continue on, but it's not something we want to have as our system of health care. The Affordable Care Act, what it does is it requires you to get a, a, a privatized health care system and the government then subsidizes the private health care system. And that's not 
and and that in itself is not sufficient enough especially because then these private institutions can dictate the cost and the prices of the healthcare and the drugs that the, that they're providing so it not, it's massively more expensive than having a a single payer healthcare system and it still provides you with the with the level of care that you can afford even though it's subsidized so it's it doesn't it, it, it mitigates some of the issues like of course like there's protections of of um of pre-existing conditions that you wouldn't have otherwise and there are and there are people a lot more people millions of people who wouldn't have health care otherwise so i'm not saying that it's it's not beneficial in any way to the previous system but it's not sufficient enough um for me i would i would rather instead of strengthening the affordable care act look to transition to something far more sufficient that provides health care to a lot more people for a lot less cost and with that we're going to take a short break and we'll be right back Get the news on our shows and other happenings by following us on Twitter. Find us at VoiceAmericaTRN or Twitter.com forward slash VoiceAmericaTRN. We're with you wherever Alexa and Google are. At home, in the car, on your smart TV, and your connected devices. Hey, Alexa. Hey, Google. Play my favorite Voice America podcast on TuneIn. It's just that easy. But don't forget to make sure you actually mention the name of the podcast show to make it work. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. You are listening to The Spotlight with the Ambassador and the Chief. If you have a question or a comment about the program, drop us a line via email to support at dbaeecsolutions.com. Again, that's support at dbaeecsolutions.com. Now back to The Spotlight. And we're back with Juan Paredes, candidate for the U.S. Uh, House of Representatives for Florida's 26th district. Juan, uh, you have made me think a lot, but uh, uh, you also support what's the new thing in, in the in, in, in economic in the United States, which is the mandate $15 an hour minimum. Can right. you tell our audience uh, was, uh, why you support it, please? Yes, yeah, so um, honestly, the, the minimum wage in, in, in its inception, um, when it was created by FDR, Uh, back in like uh, back around the 1930s during the New Deal, um, the 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 idea of it was to be basically like a safeguard for working people to give them a specific standard of having a certain amount of of, of compensation for the labor that they do. If somebody's giving you 40 hours a week of their of their time and labor then they should have at least the minimum expectations to be able to at least function in the society without too much stress. They, if it, 40 hours of labor is not insignificant, regardless of what the labor is. Even if you consider the labor menial, division, the division of labor is up to the company. So if they find that automating a certain menial task is more, it, it is more uh, profitable, they can do that. But if they are hiring human hands, then they have to be able to pay to have those human hands function in the society that they're hiring. Um, and, but over time, as, as the currency of, our, of the United States, the U.S. dollar currency became inflated, um, companies realized that if they influence policy to, to make sure that the minimum wage isn't raised, then they can increase their profit because as the inflation increases, the actual value of the, of the minimum wage decreases. And the, as, as long as the minimum wage stays stagnant, their profit rises. Uh, it's not, it's not, I'm not saying it's a conscious conspiracy, of course. It's just, it, it, it's, it's an incentive structure. They, their incentive is profit. And so if they can make more profit, 
by not raising them by by make sure the minimum wage isn't raised. Um, however, however, it, they want to project that influence because money in the United States gives you a lot of influence. Um, then they they are able to do that, and if they have the incentive to, they will. Um, but if the minimum wage is is mandated at a level that allows people to live functional lives, then everybody benefits. If you if a company can't provide the the um, uh, the compensation for labor then their product specifically isn't profitable enough to be in the market that's just how it is if you have to pay somebody a a wage that is what i consider a starvation wage a wage that they wouldn't be able to function society to be able to make profit on your product there's not really a product that should that is very profitable in the market so um, mandating this $15 minimum wage will basically be a, 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 a minimum standard of, of people being able to live a, a proper life in this society. And, and uh, there is the argument that um, the cost of living varies from location to location. Somebody living in New York, will, New York City specifically, will pay a lot more than somebody living in Wyoming, for example. And that is a fair argument. And you can we can adjust the fifteen dollar minimum wage from from region to region, but that as the baseline is is better than having too little bit and having people suffer and not being able to provide the basic means of subsistence for for living in the society. So the the fifteen dollar minimum wage can be adjusted in, in regionally if it's necessary, but. Um, fifteen dollars is not it, it, even if even if we raised to fifteen dollars, it wouldn't match the amount of money. Oh, sorry, it wouldn't match the amount of productivity that has increased since nineteen eighty. Nineteen eighty is a good standard because that's when productivity started really really increasing. And uh, if we if we if we go back to nineteen eighty, the the productivity has increased three hundred percent, but the minimum wage has stayed stagnant. People haven't been getting paid anything more. So if productivity increases and minimum wages increase isn't increasing, of course, all of that if value is being funneled directly into profit. If we raise it to $15, it's still not matching the rate, the increase in productivity, but it would be enough for people to live um, with the basic means of subsistence. So that's the reason why I support $15 minimum wage. That is a fantastic answer. Juan, how do we prevent more deaths like George Floyd's and Breonna Taylor's? Yes, yeah, and, and this, is, this is a harder one to answer because it's not just one thing, really. It's, uh, it's a combination of things that lead to a situation that, that allows for their death. Um, one is having too much, too much institutional power within mm-hmm. police officers. They have a lot less scrutiny for the amount of power that they have, so they they can they 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 can operate within guidelines, and if they make mistakes, the the consequences for those mistakes are actually mitigated, even though they have an increase in power um, in society than a regular person. Usually, when you have power, it requires a greater responsibility. And that responsibility should become and should should manifest in in a higher level of consequences. Otherwise, um, you know, you you would you wouldn't trust just anyone with that power. You trust people who understand that powers that that, that the ability that they have to uh, project that power. And you want and to mitigate the wrong people getting that power, you you have to have a certain level of consequences for somebody abusing it. And the consequences for police officers abusing that power is is not sufficient to prevent them from behaving in a way that allows for the deaths like George Floyd and Breonna Taylor. For example, like Breonna Taylor, um, no knock warrants. I understand. I understand there's an argument for no knock warrants because you don't want the criminal to know when a cop is coming in, especially if it's a if it's a covert bust. But the this the scrutiny they needed to to get the no knock warrant 
specifically was nowhere near the level that that should have been required for them to actually acquire that no-knock warrant. So not necessarily saying that no-knock warrant shouldn't exist, but it should be much more difficult to acquire one than it was for them to acquire one for Breonna Taylor's death uh, or what led up to Breonna Taylor's death. And for George Floyd, um, th this one specifically actually is is less cut and dry because it was there was actual justice being provided for George Floyd's death. However, the it took a national protest that never existed previously for the, for that justice to be upheld. We couldn't trust our our legal system to provide that justice without people going to the streets and fighting for that for that justice. So. Um, it's not so. So George Floyd's death and Breonna Taylor's death really showed us um, that there's a lot of work to be done. It's and, and like I said, it's not it's not one thing you have to change. It's a problem with the institution of the uh, of police rather than like a single thing that the police do. So, talk continuing that topic. Uh, did you did you agree with uh, taking away uh, qualified immunity? Uh, yeah, uh, I definitely support removing qualified immunity. Qualified immunity, what it does is it makes it only it only makes a violation um, uh, admissible in court if there's previous precedent of that violation in uh, being upheld in court, um, and with with sufficiently similar circumstances and facts. So, like you had, let's say somebody, um, let's say a police officer kill somebody by um, accidentally pushing them into a ditch. Well, if they pushed them into an ocean or a river, it wouldn't fall under the same level of facts. So it wouldn't really, they'd have to have a separate, um, a separate precedent in court for them to be able to uphold that is as, um, as a violation. And like I said, that, that level of scrutiny requires a, a, either, either a lot more consequences or you have to reduce level of power. Because if they have that much power to project over citizens, then the, the responsibility of wielding that power much be, must be much greater than what exists now. The, it, it, it should require much more responsibility. Um, or alternatively, we have to reduce the level of power that police officers have. If, if a police officer does a violation while, while doing their job, then they shouldn't have to be able to prove in court that they were doing their job properly without this extra level of qualified immunity, which other professions don't have, which do have liabilities themselves. For example, a surgeon. A surgeon doesn't have a qualified immunity, and he's cutting people open for a living, and he's doing a lot of risky work, um, a lot of liability in being a surgeon. There's no qualified immunity. If, if a surgeon violates a guideline or a law, they have to prove what they did wasn't a violation in court. I'm, I'm asking the same thing for police officers. If you are doing a good job, then it should be very easy for you to prove that in court. There shouldn't have to be this extra level, this extra step of scrutiny for the qualified immunity. Hey, George, you stated that you're not proposing a border that is open and unmaintained or unmonitored. So please tell our listeners what you are proposing in regards to the border. Yeah. Um, so when it comes to the border, if you if you look at the, the disparity between the Canadian and Mexican border, it, it's it's very obvious uh, of the level of security in one and the other. Um, I don't think I, I, I do agree that borders are necessary just for the organization of society. You need to know how many people exist in your country, how many people are going in and out, who are going in and out. Like all these things are necessary information for structure and organization. Uh, but it doesn't, it doesn't mean that if it just because we have a border and we are monitoring a border means that we have to militarize that border. Uh, we allow capital to flow freely from the Mexican uh, and Canadian border without any taxes, without any tariffs. They can go in and out as it pleases, but people are restricted far more. Um, and it, it, I, I, all, I'm, all, all I want is for the society to have a border that allows people to enter as long as they're not a, a, a immediate threat. The United States has a lot of land, has a lot of space, 
and people aren't flooding into the borders as some others might might uh, scaremonger. It, we just I just want a more humane border that isn't locking people up in cages, uh, waiting for court hearings for months, maybe years, being sent back, uh, especially if they are are uh, refugees being sent back to extremely dangerous situations in countries that they came from after traveling a, an incredibly dangerous journey. We we can be far more humane than we're, we're being. Um, I w- the 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 level of of uh, of containment in those borders, the people who are in cages, are honestly analogous to in, in, uh, concentration camps that we've had um, for the Japanese in during World War II. So it's it's really horrific um, what we're doing at the at the southern border and Mexican border, um, and it's not really talked enough as it should be and a lot of it honestly is continuing a lot of the stuff that trump put on is continuing under biden as well it's not like we we're doing much to change it even with this new government so it's it, the the problem with the border is beyond democrat or republican issues it's about humanity it's about treating people like people and if they and if they're not a, they're not a immediate threat to anybody else or the country what is a justification from stopping them from coming in other than the fact that um, you might not want certain people coming in uh, thank you for that let me apologize i said george i meant juan yes i was looking i was looking at the other question and alex reminded me but i'm taking it very seriously so my apologies no i i appreciate the apology though uh, you 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 speak about uh we're almost at the end, but I, I want to put this one because I, I do uh, I do agree this is will help the people to understand your platform. Mm-hmm. Uh, you speak about reform public transportation, and I'm I'm assuming I know why you you so hard in that because or what you came from. Oh, please tell our our, our listeners what do you mean with reforming public transportation? Yeah, so um, in the United States around um, 1960s. We had a deci- we had a decision where we can either improve our public transportation system and and make it far more robust, or improve our um, network of roads and make that more robust. And of course, because of the influences of these mega corporations at the time, like General Motors and Ford, um, it's not surprising we went the route of making interstate highway and making it far more accessible to vehicles like cars. But cars are very inefficient ways of transporting people. It, it's a giant vehicle, it's a large machine that transports a very small number of people. And it's very polluting to do so. Um, even, even maintaining and building these roads are far more costly and more, require much more labor than maintaining a public transportation system. Uh, and the reason why people use cars and we have a car culture is because we have a, a, a very lacking public transportation system and it benefits a very certain aspect of the society, people who can afford and maintain vehicles, which not everybody can, especially people who are at a certain level of poverty. It is very, very hard to get a vehicle and it's even harder to maintain a vehicle um, to make sure it keeps functioning. Throughout, you know, throughout your uh, lifetime or the time that you need it. So it, the only viable way to make sure that people have the ability to get to work, because if, if people can't get to work, then they're going to stay unemployed. If they stay unemployed, they're going to be continually be a, a cost to society rather than somebody who pays into society. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and we can only make sure that everybody gets to work by having sure that everybody has proper transportation. And I mean, we like, we could either give everybody cars or we could give uh, people a proper uh, public, trans- public transportation system. I mean, in my, in Miami, for example, we have two train lines and I, for example, I work in Miami beach right now for, and I've, I took, I've been taking public transportation for over a year before COVID happened. Um, and, if for me to go to Miami Beach, I'd have to take two buses, which aren't guaranteed to be on time, a train, and then another bus to get to Miami Beach, which again isn't guaranteed to be on time. 
So uh, that kind of uncertainty forces me to leave much earlier than I have to, make me wake up much earlier than I have to. And then um, I have to have that level of stress that if I even miss a single stop, I'm going to be late. So yeah. it's it, that, that, that pushes me to not take trouble transportation. It pushes me to put myself, even, even if I have to put myself in a very difficult position to acquire a vehicle, because that's the only way I can have security and reliability. If I had security and reliability in public transportation, the vehicle wouldn't be necessary. And it would make my position, if I, if I struggled financially, which I did for a long time, it, it would make it my, the ability for me to transition out of poverty much easier, much quicker, if I didn't have that burden of needing a vehicle, if we had proper public transportation. I, I would say that uh, even that proving your case, you know, D.C., New York, when they got reliable public transportation, even the people with means use public transportation. So that's a strong case. Right. And Singapore uh, has even profitable public transportation. Yeah. Well, we are about we are at the end of our episode and our interview. Juan, you've been very kind with your time. Thank you so much for taking the time and explaining your platform. We wish you the best. Harry, take us out. Hey, Juan, uh, you are extremely well-educated. Don't ever put that down. Uh, and we were so impressed, and we know voters are always looking for a fresh face. So we wish you the best of luck. And after you're elected to Congress, please come back uh, to our program. Yeah, definitely. And honestly, thank you guys for having me on your show. And I really appreciate uh, the kind words. And if, and honestly, um, if you guys would have me, I would definitely like to come back even before I'm elected to Congress. So, <laughs> Okay, we'll work it out. Well, it was the spotlight with the ambassador and the chief. Thank you very much. Thank you for tuning into the spotlight with the ambassador and the chief. Be sure to join Chief Alex Morales and Ambassador Harry Thomas again on the Voice America Variety Channel.